That song always undoes me a bit, so uh, you'll have to bear with me, but good morning. We're in Galatians 5, 13 through 20. No, 13 through 18. (laughs) You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Thank you, Julie. You know the worship is good when you got to go retrieve your scripture reader from the crowd because they're just so into it, right? She was about to come up. She was about to come up. So (laughs) welcome to Table Church, everybody, whether you're here in person, online. It is good to see you. My name's Megan Cook. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Table Church. Uh, Whether you're kind of new or you've been here for a long time, welcome. Don't forget, we do have Table Talk right after this for about 10 minutes after service right over in the lobby. Uh, So if you've never gotten to go to Table Talk, no matter how long you've come to Table Church, uh, please go join us there. Also, we're going to be in the book of Galatians today. If you don't have a Bible with you and uh, you would like to have one, uh, we have some ushers that can pass them out. You just put your hand up and then um, they will come and find you. So if you need a Bible, let us know. You can keep that Bible if you want to. Uh, It's yours to keep if you don't already have one or you just want an extra one. We're not going to ask. You can just keep it, (laughs) okay? All right, so we are talking in this series about what it means to be Wesleyan. If you do not already know this, Table Church is a part of a denomination called the Wesleyan Church, okay? And today, we're going to be talking about discipleship. Now, Wesleyans are known for how we follow Jesus. The Methodist movement actually came out of the Anglican Church in England in the 1700s, and they didn't actually mean to form a new denomination at the time. It was just a group of people that started being very deliberate about how they were following Jesus. In fact, The word Methodist was actually kind of a little bit of an insult (laughs) at the time, and it simply referred to the the methods that these people would use to follow Jesus. A ton of really deliberate, really intentional discipleship was happening, and so that's how they became the Methodists, by all the methods that they were using to follow Jesus. Those people were very serious about this. There was this incredible synergy in the way that the early Methodists did discipleship, of intentional community and personal devotion to Jesus and engagement in culture and in society, especially in the roughest, most dangerous and destitute, dangerous and destitute places in uh, the world, in the city, in rural areas. Wesleyans, the Methodists, were the ones who would go out to all the places that nobody else wanted to. Okay, that's really what they were known for. Discipleship in the places where people in more religious sections of the church did not want to go. All right, now every week during this series, we're sending out some extra things to you every Monday. 
okay, kind of fitting with the theme, what it means to be Wesleyan. So every Monday we're sending out um, just some resources, like stuff to read over the last few hundred years from the Methodist movement, from Wesleyans, um, old and new. We want to make sure that you have every opportunity that you can to learn as much as you want about this movement that you are a part of because it's so important. So tomorrow... We're going to send out some more things to you. And when I send out that email, there's going to be a recording of a podcast episode that I did with one of my old seminary professors named Dr. Eby. And um, Dr. Eby is an actual, legitimate Wesley scholar. Like, he's a doctor who studied John and Charles Wesley, (laughs) okay? Theology, history, all of it. He's an incredible guy, really great to get to know. So we really want to make sure that you listen to that episode because in less than an hour, you will receive everything you basically need to know about who we are as Wesleyans and how we began, okay? So it's everything you need in one episode. Do you promise you'll listen? Can I get, oh, I got a, I got a nod. That's right. <laughs> I'll take it. So we want to make sure that you get to do that because we're not going to have time, obviously, to cover that in four weeks. Okay. Now, I want to start today with this question. What does the gospel mean for you? What does the gospel mean for you? Get that question in your mind. What's the gospel? And what's it mean for you? Now, we're in the book of Galatians today. Galatians is a letter from Paul, here's the situation going on in Galatia at the time. So since the time of Abraham, thousands of years ago, God set the nation of Israel apart, okay? You could be born a Jew, you could be grafted in, but either way, to be a member of that family meant something very significant both for who you are and how you live the details of your actual life. Salvation for the whole world eventually arrives in the Messiah, Jesus, who's, of course, a member of God's set-apart family. Jesus is a Jew. Paul is also a Jew. Now, anybody who isn't Jewish is a Gentile. Anytime you see that word in the Bible, it just means everybody who's not Jewish, okay? Everybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile, and now all those Gentile people also have immediate access to the family of God. The access point is Jesus. We get in through faith in who Jesus is. And Paul goes to Galatia with that news that Jesus is the one who's rescued us from sin and darkness, and he's actually alive in the world right now. They can actually know him, experience him. The gospel is the news that Jesus is available right now. That's what the gospel is. There is nothing to do to earn your role in what's happening. You simply have to understand and acknowledge who Jesus is and take your place in the family of God. The church in Galatia grew very quickly, and they took hold of that news. That gospel transformed this community of people, and it caught fire. But time passes as it will, and you've got to figure out how to organize your actual lives. What does the good news mean right now. We have this good news. We know it's good, but what do we do now? Because life has to go on. To quote Hamilton, dying is easy and living is harder, right? It's easy to win that one big thing, but now you got to figure out how to live it out, how to live it out. they got to figure this out. Now, this is where the problems start. There's all kinds of discord about what you actually have to do to be in the family of God. Like, anybody can get in now, but like, what do you have to do to really be in? How do you know you're in? 
Many ethnic Jews at the time could not imagine that someone could join the family without adopting all the ways of life that Jewish people have followed for all this time. What do you eat? What do you do with your body? All of those things. They cannot imagine someone being all the way in the family without also doing those things. And it's into that situation that Paul says this. He writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Like, that's intense. Okay, so in other words, how things have been is getting in the way of where the gospel wants to take them. These are people who embrace the gospel and they love Paul and the same message that they loved back then when he first preached it is now stirring up hostility that it didn't before. Paul is looking back to when he first came to Galatia and he says this. Paul says, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? Same message. You used to love me. Now you hate me. I can testify. If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? All right. When we're confronted by the gospel, we have to respond. And the kind of daily discernment that's required to adopt a gospel way of living is very difficult. And it feels easier to drift back into what's familiar. Paul sees that happening in this church, and he writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Grace and culture always collide. They always collide. Here's what we have to understand about culture. The cultures we walk in do not neatly fold into the grace of God and never stop pulling us away from him. Culture is not good or evil, it just is. It's just the environments that we live our lives in. But any culture that isn't ruled by the law of love will pull you away from God. And the only culture, of course, that runs on that love is the kingdom of God. As people who carry the gospel, we have to figure out how to embody this new kingdom culture while we still live here. That is why, ultimately, this message is about discipleship, how to follow Jesus while we live right here. What does the gospel mean for us? Let me tell you a story about a friend of mine. This friend has been in ministry in Des Moines for 15-plus years, so a long time, teaching the same things over and over. And essentially, the point is teaching people how to understand the world that they live in now so that they can love those people best. Okay, social and economic dynamics, racial and gender equity, all things this ministry has addressed for several decades through the lens of the Bible. 
through the Bible, they look at the world right now and glean what they can, that the Spirit is discerning, you know, saying, what do we do with this here and now where we are, wherever we are in the world, okay? So the whole point of this ministry is and has always been to understand the world that you're in now, to know God as deeply as possible, and then to put all that together and embody Jesus to the world, okay? That's the whole point. So this friend sent me a polo last week, actually, um, just after uh, a meeting that she had had. And for those of you who don't know, Marco Polo is an app where you can communicate the same amount of information as a text message, but in twice the time with an awkward video. That's what Marco Polo is, okay? So she sends me this polo with angry tears coming down her face as she leaves this training session with people that she's known and discipled for years, and she has been leading this team to apply the same things that she's always taught, the same things this entire organization has always taught, nothing new. But in this current context, in our world, in this city, she's been begin to get a whole lot of pushback. It just comes here or there, more and more and more. The same message that people were embracing five, ten years ago, suddenly it strikes them differently. And she says she's been hearing a lot of pushback and feedback that says things like this. We need to stop giving so much attention to things that are going on in the world. Because ultimately, all our problems are a sin issue. Spending our time talking about gender and race and social issues pulls us away from the centrality of the gospel. She hears that a lot. Now, my friend asked this person to explain what do you mean by the centrality of the gospel? Because that's that question, right? What's the gospel? What does the gospel mean for you? And this teammate explains the gospel is that everyone is a sinner. And through the blood of Jesus, we can be saved from our sin. we got to focus on that. Meeting Jesus, being saved from our sin. Everything else is a distraction. This is the one thing that matters most, and everything else will work itself out. Now, my friend, who I know speaks this with so much love, she responded by saying, we are not here to follow culture. We're here to follow Jesus. And if we're following Jesus, we have to care about what Jesus cares about. Jesus cares about people and wants every person to flourish right now. And it's not that these two are in disagreement. They're not. They agree about what's most important. There's disagreement about what to do with what they believe. There is just so much more to the gospel than freedom from the penalty of sin. The gospel is the news that Jesus is available right now. And that means in Christ, we can be free from the penalty of sin but also in Christ, be set free right here from the legacies of sin, from the effects of sin on our bodies and homes and neighborhoods, free from the ways that sin destroys our connections with God and with each other, free from the tyranny of fear and pride and control and selfishness and greed. The gospel doesn't settle for only removing the penalty of sin. 
The gospel is an invitation to see the world as it is so we can get it where it will be. That is the gospel. God is taking this world to perfection. And if we treasure the gospel, we live to apply it to every real world situation we encounter. The gospel news becomes the body that we live in. What's the centrality of the gospel? Paul actually spells it out. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The centrality of the gospel is to allow the love of God to live through you. That's what we have to remember. That's what we have to do. There has always been disagreement in the church when we try to figure out what it means to actually live this out because real life is where the gospel confronts the ways that the world works. When we try to live out the gospel, this is where all the controversy occurs in the details. The details. The culture of the kingdom of God is always scandalous, both for how little and how much it requires of us. That is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Stop trying to add to this message. Everybody can get in, and the only rule is Jesus. But also, if you receive the gospel and take it on as the authority over your life, you have to live it out in the world. It's a free gift, and it's also meant to take over your life. That's the gospel. Are we called to be preoccupied with sin management or captured by kingdom renewal? Are we called to be preoccupied with sin management or captured by kingdom renewal? What does it mean to be Wesleyan? Wesleyans are captured by kingdom renewal. That's who we are. We've been talking about our history as a denomination, and last week, Pastor Phil took us through our roots here in America, where uh, this particular branch of the Methodist movement began, the Wesleyan Church. We're a denomination that formed in the midst of slavery in America. Now, there were some Methodists here in the States that wanted abolition to come slowly, more progressively, and some that wanted it to stop right now. Okay. The ones who wanted to stop right now didn't intend to leave uh, the Methodist movement as it was, but it worked itself out that way over time. They become this brand new denomination in the midst of that cultural moment. Okay. And those people who wanted abolition now, they behaved in many ways that the earliest Methodists in England acted. They were zealots. People thought that they were a little crazy or weird, unreasonable, focused on the wrong things, okay? But abolition does happen. It happens. And now, this new denomination that formed out of this desire to put holiness into practice had to figure out how to move forward, right? Our founder, Orange Scott, Phil, showed a picture of him last week. He passed away in 1847, and before he died, he left these words for the church, He said, let all our ministries and people keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of perfectness, and there is nothing to fear. That was his last word to the church. It sounds a lot like Paul, 
who says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That is what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Unity. Live by love and not by fear. That's not exactly what happened in the Wesleyan Church, though. Once slavery gets abolished, the core of this brand new denomination would start to unravel within a few generations. Because now that the law has changed, the work of actually renewing society continues, and that is much messier. It's not as clear. It was easier to unite over one clear objective, just abolish the law of slavery, but now they need to figure out how to live the liberation out. There's a lot of disagreement about how to do it. Now, enslaved people are legally free, but their lives and the way that they've always worked, things have always worked in America, remain the same, right? Nothing changes. The law changed, but how society moves and works and functions and everything is set up in a particular way, none of that changes overnight, None of it does, okay? So they had that clear goal, they met it, and now what does real freedom look like, okay? One of the biggest, most (laughs) difficult to talk about uh, portions of Wesleyan history is that in the midst of all of this, after slavery is abolished, many of the white Christians in the Wesleyan movement really were not prepared for what, would, what it would take to actually live out liberation and justice for everyone. We weren't really prepared for what that would cost us. Like, would it mean that now people who were formerly slaves can lead in our churches That seems divisive. (laughs) Things like that. So this is where things start to really get tricky and really fall apart. It's one of the most difficult parts of our history to learn about and to talk about. White Wesleyans had to confront what abolition would cost them. Caused a lot of division. The reality of the gospel always corrects and confronts the way we think things are or how we think they ought to be. The gospel obliterates all categories and powers and authorities beneath the authority of Jesus. The gospel isn't just making the world better. The culture of the kingdom of God is moving us somewhere that only God has seen so far. And he's inviting us to catch a bit of that vision of where things ultimately will be. The kingdom defies categories. Jesus pushes out far beyond where we're comfortable, both in how inclusive he is and how seriously he takes every little thing we do. Paul describes the kingdom this way. He says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. We will probably be surprised at the people who fit into the kingdom of God. Grace has huge arms, but also in Christ, you've died, and now Christ lives in you. You're not a slave to sin anymore, but you are a slave to Jesus. That's the gospel so inclusive and it requires so little of you and so much of you 
freedom that inclusive and demanding requires a completely countercultural way of living. It is always easier to pass laws than to renew society. It's always easier to move with the tide of culture, religion. This is where Wesleyans were after abolition. It took just a few decades before they started to realize what was actually happening. We started to see splits in our communities between people who prioritized social holiness and the people who prioritized personal holiness. It took us a while to notice this because everybody thought they had the same goal. We're living out the gospel. We're sharing the good news. We're Jesus people. But it turns out, in many ways, we were also two groups moving with tides in culture, moving with what the world of religion was giving us with what felt comfortable or safe would help us get by. Okay? Lots of shifts were happening in America at that time. This is where fundamentalism and evangelicalism begin to grow stronger as church culture starts to separate itself from what's happening in the world. The portions of the Wesleyan family that remained focused on urban ministry, working with the poor, providing education and trade work, they're increasingly seen as progressive. Okay? Those people are more progressive. And those that focused on personal dedication to God, Bible reading, personal acts of devotion, how to act and dress to set yourself apart with the Lord, they're seen as more conservative. This is happening in the Wesleyan church, just like it was happening everywhere else in America. Okay? So back to our question, what is the gospel? What does the gospel mean for you? What is freedom for? Is freedom for transforming neighborhoods or transforming souls? And obviously that's a false dichotomy because it is both. Freedom is both. The gospel is both. The gospel is easily misunderstood and it never gives you a list of rules to follow. You've got to walk with the spirit of truth and pursue unity with people you may disagree with. It's easy to get off course, to lean more toward personal holiness or social holiness. It's easy to get bewitched. That's Paul's word, the word bewitched, by anything other than the spirit of truth. You know why that is so easy? It is so easy because the world and the flesh and the devil want that to happen. If you're being formed by anything that isn't from God, you will not encounter much resistance. The centrality of the gospel is to allow the love of God to live through you. That's the centrality of the gospel. It's easy to slowly move in the direction of some other little masters to get away from the voice of the Spirit because discipleship requires so much from us. In John 10, Jesus is talking, uh, and he's saying he's the, he's the good shepherd. We're the sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me. You know, they can, they can hear his voice above all the noise of the crowd. Why do those sheep know that voice? Because they've had a lot of practice. 
because they trust their shepherd and they know he will keep them safe. And so when all of this other chaos is happening around them, they have practiced over time to tune their ears to focus in on his voice because he's the one who's safe. He's the one who's good. He's the one they want to follow. They practice over and over and over again to the point that there can be absolute cacophony and his voice sticks out above all the other noise. That is how it's meant to be. Discipleship to Jesus must be rigorous and potent and deliberate and constant because the other thousand voices in your life will never stop competing for your heart. The earliest Methodists in England were constantly um, put in, in categories like they're outcasts, they're zealots, they're crazy for all of the specific stuff that they do that they add into their life to follow God. They were also the only people usually in the neighborhood that would care for orphans, give people homes who needed them, give people what they need so they have shelter, food, Sunday school, education, all those types of things. They did both. They were known for how crazy they were with following Jesus with all these specific things in their community and also how crazy they were for doing stuff that absolutely nobody else wanted to do in the church, things that looked very beneath most of the religious people in society. They were known for both. Over time, we've been known for one thing or another. We're trying to come back to being known for both here in Des Moines. That is what we're doing. Now, what does that mean for you? How can you start to live that way where you've got more and more and more of your life um, just overtaken with these little things that you do that add up to a lifetime of just intentionally following Jesus together? We have a tool for that. So if you've never seen it before, we have something called the Discipleship Pathway. Um, you can go to our website. You can find it in the top bar up there. You can also just go to discipleship.guide. And so when you go there, you can learn all about how it works. It's just two people walking through a day-by-day journey together, lots of flexible ways to get it done um, that, that helps you to put deliberate practices into your day that get you interacting with God and each other. That's what it is. It takes about seven months to get through it uh, with another person. And the way that it's set up, you can go through the same pathway over and over and over again. I always say it's evergreen. It's set up in such a way that you can do the same thing 20 times, and I have at this point. (laughs) And God is always saying something new, doing something new in your life, in the life of the person that you're with, in your community. And so it's just this incredible thing, this rhythm that you can put into your life and It keeps you in step with the Spirit when your job, school, family relationships, the world, all those things are just so chaotic. This is something simple that you can do with another person that really will dramatically change your life, okay? And so if you've never done the pathway before, we would invite you to learn about it, ask us questions. You can mark it on your connection card. I'll get a hold of you. I can explain things to you. Something that's cool, uh, the pathway that we use, Phil and I actually wrote it several years ago. And um, it ended up taking us about a year to complete. 
so it took quite a bit of time because we were doing it in the midst of life. And now that we have it, it has just been absolutely remarkable to see what is happening with it here in Des Moines and also uh, around the world. So if you don't know, um, I also work for the headquarters of the Wesleyan Church. And what's been cool is headquarters actually asked if they could use our discipleship pathway that we have at Table Church and give it away to the entire English-speaking section of the denomination. And so the Wesleyan Church has an app. If you go to that app, there's a discipleship pathway, and it's going to look very similar to the one that we use at Table Church because it's the same. And so what's cool... Thank you. So what's cool is this has been uh, going on for a very long time. So this pathway has been around for several years. Hundreds and hundreds of people who do not go to table church, who we've never met before, are using this pathway, have used this pathway. It's kind of crazy. It's just the kind of thing that, like, we have nothing to do with all that. It's just out there, and it's free, and um, we get to see, you know, in analytics how it's going. So um, that's an amazing thing. Many churches near here also use this pathway. But what's awesome is my job at the Wesleyan Church is to help other pastors, lay leaders, create discipleship materials for their own context, to make stuff themselves that comes up out of the place where they live and work and worship. And so uh, we don't want to just provide one thing and say, everybody, this works great. We'll just translate it into your language. Everybody can use it. Uh, We don't want to stop there. And so we give this one away for free, and then what I get to do is spend a lot of time in my job talking with other ministry leaders to coach them and teach them so that they can create things themselves for their people, okay? So the one that we use is pretty applicable for here in Des Moines, but there are so many other communities. For example, Phil and I are terrible about not sharing stories like this. We just forget to share. For example, though, right now at headquarters, we're working on the exploratory phases of hiring two staff people who speak Spanish as their first language to create discipleship pathways and resources for Spanish-speaking people in America, in Central America, and in Mexico. Okay, so that's really cool. That's really cool. And they're not just going to take what we have and translate it into Spanish. We're going to hire them and then coach them in the process of creating things for those specific places. So that's cool. I have another friend named Cheryl who pastors in um, Native American communities in South Dakota. And so Cheryl, wonderful pastor, absolutely incredible woman, she loves using the pathway that we have, and I was talking with her, and um, long story very short, we are now going to work on creating pathways for discipleship that people can use in Native communities around South Dakota up out of their own culture, so they don't have to use ours. which is so nice. So there's all these cool things that are happening, and you're a part of it if you didn't know. (laughs) So if you haven't had a chance to go through the pathway, you don't have to go through it before you take someone else through it. You can grab a friend. You can both go through it together before you invite someone else to do it. There's many ways to make it happen, but it will absolutely change your life because it's tiny, deliberate practices that you do that have this potency of the spirit at work in your life where you are right now. It's why we moved here. It's why we started this church. It's everything that we do. This is who we are. So we are just making this big, wide invitation. If you want more information about that, just go ahead and put it on your connection card. 
I will do everything in my power to get you hooked up into the pathway with another person. Don't let the question stop you. I will help you. We will get you there, okay? Amen? I know. That's right. Okay, okay. <laughs> Listen, everybody, the gospel gets lived out in that tension between where things are and where they will ultimately be. Christians are called to live in that holy tension where nobody out in the world really entirely understands what you're doing. It gets very hard to put you in a box, okay? Table Church is called to live in that holy tension too. You're a part of that. We love you so much. Okay, so as we worship right now, I'm going to have you all just stand. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would just flood every person in this room, every person joining us online with spirit fire, that you would burn brilliantly in this family. For those who have been with us for a while, those who are new, Jesus, I pray that you would burn in our lives, burn away what should not be there, and invite in all of the good and beautiful things that you want to not just be there, but to grow and flourish in our lives. And I pray that you would unite us together with the bonds of peace that only you can accomplish. This world is difficult to navigate as a believer, and there are so many people that need to know you. So Jesus, come and work in our midst. Work in our midst now to accomplish what you want to accomplish in us. Unite us together in a way that only you can. Jesus, we will not settle for anything less than full gospel flourishing in our hearts, in our families, in our community. Jesus, we are not here for nothing. We're here to be entirely transformed by the Spirit. It's in your name that we pray.